Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Kicking the Kairiaki, the perfect place for your monthly fix of intersectional feminism. Our aim is simple. We're two privileged, cis, white, non-disabled, neurotypical millennial girls who are trying to do our bit by platforming voices, narratives and stories traditionally ignored by the mainstream. We like to take topics and stick them to the figurative man. You won't find any mansplaining or snowflake shaming here. Hopefully just open, honest discussions and maybe a terrible joke or two. Last month, we covered disability and chatted about everything from person-specific language, passing privilege in neurotypical functioning, and the forgotten disabled women of colour you definitely should have learned about in school. Jacob Sanders told us that it was a great episode and that they were glad that we had an autistic person on, which is really great to hear. Neurodiversity was definitely news to us and we're so glad Kaz reached out to us and that we were able to feature her in an episode. So please reach out to us if there's anything you'd like us to cover or even if it's to call us in on something. We're not perfect. Sometimes we get things wrong and it's really important to us that we keep learning. And on that note, this month's topic is definitely something we as Brits collectively could do with educating ourselves on more slavery the transatlantic slave trade is something we all learn about in school but we're only taught as part of the u.s history we ignore the fact that british cities like london and bristol were quite literally built off the back of slavery with the biggest financial bailout in history before the 2008 financial crisis being the compensation for the emancipation act this is compensation for the slave owners not the slaves And then what we do learn is so far removed from present day, slavery is but a blip from 200 years ago, yet it was only last year that the Libyan slave trade made headlines. Slavery is still alive and well today and happening right now under your nose. As usual, we've got three amazing guests, Kayindi, Afwa and Maravik, to tell us their stories. My name's Kayindi, I'm 35, I'm black, family man I guess as well, I've got a lot of kids. <laughs> amazing, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this month. The episode this month is all about slavery and we're kind of trying to approach it from a variety of perspectives, like a historical perspective and then also trying to take on a perspective of what's happening in, in the current climate and like I guess modern day slavery in a sense. But is there any way that you could kind of summarise or explain what the transatlantic slave trade was? Slash, can you describe maybe what slavery involved? And I'm conscious that that's a really loaded, big question. The slave trade, they call it the transatlantic slave trade because it was a system that went uh, across the Atlantic. They also call it the triangular trade uh, because it went essentially pick up Europeans, we pick up African people who hadn't been enslaved on the African continent. We take them across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, the Americas, and actually about 40% of enslaved Africans went to Brazil. Uh, then they would, they would be, if you like, deposited like cargo. Uh, onto the plantations, we'd do, we'd do the work like cotton and sugar and the key commodities that kind of built the West. And then those materials would be taken from the Americas 
over to Europe, again across the Atlantic. Uh, they'll be sold, and then the empty ships would go back from Europe back down to Africa. And so that trade, that triangular trade, existed for about 300, just over 300 years, and generated literally untold wealth uh, that really is one of the foundations, maybe the most important foundation of the, w- the wealth that we have today. So how is the Western world, and the UK in particular, how is it built on the back of this? 1492 is a really important year. Uh, the reason that European powers were sending people around the world to try and find different parts because they needed land, they needed resources. Europe wasn't providing enough to kind of boost the, the next stage of development. And so when Columbus lands in, in the Caribbean accidentally, he's trying to get to India. When he lands there in 1492, they find really what they need to kind of spur development in the West. So, and that expansion into the Americas, into North America, into the Caribbean is absolutely fundamental to what we have today because it provided the land, it provided the resources, uh, commodities like cotton. So before you had um, slavery, you had genocide. There was a huge genocide. 80% of the people that are native to the Americas, and that's from South America to the tip of North America. And once they'd exhausted that labor, they needed other labor, they needed people to do the work, and they turned to Africa. Uh, the idea was that Africans were stronger, were bigger, were more like animals, uh, weren't really people, and could be worked like cattle. And if you take something like cotton, for example, and cotton really is what spurs the Industrial Revolution in the UK. So in the UK, it's a spinning jenny. is one of the first in- inventions in the 18th century. Uh, it's the money from cotton uh, that's really important that goes into the things like the steam engine and the Industrial Revolution. And so these things that we've kind of told ourselves this story, that it's industry and it's science and it's uh, political freedoms, these are the things that made the West special. But actually, if you trace it back, it's very, 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 very clear that the money the wealth that was from slavery uh, was absolutely necessary and essential for any of these things to happen. The Industrial Revolution in particular just doesn't happen without, without slavery. Wow. When researching this topic, I think w- one of the things that surprised me the most was definitely how much Britain in particular was, I guess, generated like a lot of its wealth off the back of slavery and how none of this is ever like touched on in schools or in the curriculum or anything like that like i unless you did any of your own research into this you'd have no idea um yes i mean we're really terrible at telling these stories and if you look at uk i mean some cities it wouldn't really exist at all without slavery so liverpool and bristol in particular that as ports they develop a hundred percent develop around that triangular trade. London as well would probably about, be about a third of the size uh, without its slave docks. And then also places like someone from Birmingham, something like half of all the chains and could have contributed a good percentage of all the guns used to enslave Africans. And so this, without that wealth, this, again, there simply isn't uh, the Industrial Revolution. So w- when you actually trace this back, you find very, very clearly that everywhere, all of the wealth in Britain is hugely tied up and, and, and uh, indebted to, to slavery. Uh, another one of the things we often don't think about, what's Britain's biggest industry now, I guess, is probably finance, finance capitalism. Well, finance capitalism starts in slavery. I mean, Britain's biggest corporation is Lloyd's of London, celebrated its, I think it was 400th year anniversary recently. And the CEO came on and she said they were happy, proud to celebrate their roots in the merchant trade. And what she actually was referring to was their roots in, in, in insuring slave ships. That's where the practice of insurance becomes commodified, and you can trace a lot of these companies, Lloyd's of London in particular, directly to their roots in insurance relationships. Um, and even in terms of finance capital to the banks, the way that money gets organized and moved around is traced back down to this, to this period. And the big banks like Barclays all, 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 all have money and roots, really, in slave, in slave money. There's not, part, there's not one part of the British economy that hasn't been at some point enriched through slavery.
So talking about money in particular and, and finance, what are reparations and should they be paid? So in America, they've done a lot of work on this. And we think what happened over those 300 years, you have 300 years of unpaid labor uh, and also trauma. That system was the most barbaric, is the most, it's the darkest period of human history. And so again, there's historical precedent for giving reparations for trauma. Like the, for example, the German government has paid out nine, nine, I think it's something like 90 billion pounds um, to Jewish survivors of the Holocaust based on trauma. They all, Germany have also paid out money to Namibia and Namibian uh, victims of torture and colonialism. So you have historical precedents of paying unpaid labor and trauma. So basically what you do is you add this up and say, well, how much money should we have been paid? Uh, how much interest should be unpaid on top of that? Then how much money do you get for trauma? And it's a really big number. It's like a, it's like a huge number. Now, this is important because, and this is one of the things that gets lost mostly when the right wing talk about slavery, is that what slavery finished in Britain was abolished in 1834, and that sounds like a long time ago. Actually, the legacy of it is still very, very, very much here. And there's also this disparity on the African continent where we often just don't talk about slavery at all. Slavery literally destroyed the development of Africa for those 300 years, removing the population, enslaving people, and then colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. So the impacts are very clear, and they're not just clear, they're also very economic. And on the other side of this, uh, Britain in particular actually paid out reparations to the slave owners. And that's how profitable slavery was, that they paid the equivalent of £2 billion pounds on abolition to slave owners. And there's a, there's a study by the University College London, uh, it's called Legacies of British slave ownership where they basically tracked where all this money went and it's the churches it's the big big business it's rich families david cameron's family actually took uh, had some slave reparation money you can track where it's gone and you can see how that that money that investment of that money and the wealth produced off that money and that's a fraction of what what is owed to the descendants of um, of slavery if we had had reparations we would be doing much better than we are today the fact that people generally across the world are in a very bad position today is still attributable to the debt that's owed um, from slavery. And I suppose it's like when you when you think about how within like black communities, I guess compared to, to to white communities and white people, there's lot there's like vast amounts of money and wealth transferred between like white families, but there isn't as much much in black families and black communities. And I wonder if that's kind of partially because of that, in the sense that like all this money that they got from the reparations of slavery is just kind of just constantly being reinvested into like passed down through families and passed down and you know invested in like libraries and universities, and none of it's actually going to the yeah, black. No, Jeez. You can see that very clearly with the research at the uh, UCL, uh, where that money went and where that was invested. And also, it's kind of an under-discussed issue of racial inequality, which is the wealth disparity. The wealth disparity, for black people in particular, um, and also other minorities in the UK and Europe, is huge. And that wealth disparity is hugely important because that is actually where you get intergenerational issues of, of racial inequality, where you can't, you can't progress the way that you would think you have because you just don't have the money and the capital to do that. And again, this wealth disparity is clearly attributable back to slavery. You take people from Africa, you, you don't pay them, you, you, you completely impoverish them. Uh, then you say you're free, but you don't give, you don't give any, you don't get no reparations, you don't get no, no, no support, so you're 100% at the bottom destitute, while you're in a society that's benefited from uh, your unpaid labor and torture for 300 years. And then you somehow expect there to be equality. Well, sure, there can't, there can't ever be equality until that gap is, is filled. And that gap would be filled with um, reparations, I guess. Are reparations always financial? 
Um, so the reparations, and this is this is where I, I, other people on reparations will probably say other stuff. So like now, there's a there's a big push around like psychic reparations or psychological reparations or educational reparations because the deficits aren't just economic. And if you look at CARICOM, uh, which is a collection of Caribbean countries who are demanding reparations now uh, from the West uh, through the UN, you know they're not asking actually, mostly not really asking for money. It's uh, it's educational programs. There's some development money, development aid, cancelling debt, uh, but a lot of the stuff is like an apology. There there are these kind of psychological, educational, even spiritual things uh, that need to be repaired. I'm a little bit different on this. I actually think it's it's, it's solely this is solely an issue of money. Um, and the reason I say it's a sole issue of money is because I think one of the issues with the reparations, the logic of reparations is that when you when you calculate how much money we're talking about, this historically huge number is actually a number that would be absolutely impossible to pay. Like the, the money doesn't even exist. Like you couldn't pay reparations. It's impossible. And so for me, thinking about it, this is really important because then it tells you something. It tells you that actually the central logic of slavery is that black people aren't really human, can be treated as though they are not human, and will be exploited as though they're not human in order to, uh, to benefit the Western developed Western economy is actually still exactly the same relationship that exists today, and we just see it in different ways. So, for example, police killings, um, you can kill black people very easily because they don't really count. And so what you realize in reparations is that this is so structured, it's so... If, if, if we take the basic argument that you need to have an economic repair, you need to give people back their money, you need to give them the material support in order to have equality, and then you calculate and work out that it's basically impossible within the economic system to do that, then you realize that you need a much more uh, revolutionary solution to the problem. You, in your article in The Guardian, you talked about a really interesting analogy by Malcolm X about the, the knife in the back and the withdrawing of the knife. Could you explain that? Yeah, so Malcolm was being asked, um, when he talked about reparations a, a few times, actually, and basically what he says is if you, if you, if you plunge a knife nine inches into my back uh, and, then only, and then take it at six inches, but then you clearly, isn't any, you clearly haven't helped. You haven't made it any better. And by that six inches, he's basically talking about civil rights gains. So that's like you've, you've enslaved us, you've impoverished us, you've put us in uh, terrible hats, et cetera, et cetera, but now we're going to give you the vote, for example. Well, that's nice. Well, he didn't actually solve any of the problems, right? You've created this massive wound. And he says, well, even if you pull out the knife all the way, right, take it out, the knife's no longer in our back. You're no longer being racist to us. Maybe the police no longer shoot us in the street. Maybe we can have a black president. So even if you took all that, take out, take out overt direct racism. That's nice, that's better than it was before, but you've still got a gaping wound uh, in your back, right? And we're never going to have, you can't have equality without it. What you need to do is to heal the wound. And the only way to heal the wound is, is to reset it, is to stitch it, is to, is to pl- provide support for it. And so if you've, if you've taken and, and exploited and, and literally leached trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of pounds out of black people, then the only way you could ever possibly solve that issue would be to, to, to give it back, right? would be to put it back. And that's what real reparations are, complete solution of the problem. So two questions. Are there any lasting impacts still visible uh, and still tangible today from slavery, particularly in the UK? And do you think reparations slash like a fair, just, equal society is possible? There's two ways to answer the first part, question, and that is, I would always say that slavery, it's impossible to look at slavery separate from any from the rest of Western society. So for example, slavery happened 200 years ago, 
but actually the fundamental organizing principle of, of the West since 1492 has been white supremacy. And what the West has done and has based itself on is enriching itself off everybody else, right? And it does this through slavery, and then you have colonialism. So actually once you've said, okay, well, slavery is bad, so you... you Take, take over people's countries, you run their economies, you take the wealth out of them. So while slavery may have ended, that same principle is passed on into colonialism. Again, when people resist and people say, well, no, we're no longer going to be led by you, we're going to have our revolutions and we're going to, have, we're going to run our own countries, then we have uh, neo-colonialism, where is what you have now. So uh, you may have liberation of the Caribbean or Asia or Africa, you may have political freedom, uh, political freedom in theory, but in reality, your whole entire economy is controlled by, run by uh, the West. So take somewhere like Nigeria, for example, all its oil fields, its natural wealth is owned by Shell. Africa is the richest continent on the planet by mineral wealth. It is the poorest continent because all those minerals are literally taken out and leached off by uh, the West and increasingly China. And so when you're saying is there, is there a legacy of slavery, of course, they, these are direct legacies and these haven't really stopped. Come to your second point. And once you say that, then you say, well, look, are these things reparations possible? As I said earlier, Add up the money, it is literally impossible. The money doesn't exist. Even if you could do, let's say you could, let's say you could add up a number, it was a very big number, and you could transfer the wealth and you could work out a system of which to give it to uh, African countries, Caribbean countries, etc. Let's say you could do that, and black people in the West and in America as well. Let's say you could do that, and then you gave all that money over, the impact of that would be to enrich the Caribbean, it would be to enrich Africa in particular. But hang on a second, the West. Today, we still depend on the exploitation of African resources. I mean, one of the, the biggest contradictions of Black Lives Matter is that the mechanism by which it, that by which it works is the smartphone, right? And the smartphone, the only reason we have smartphones and have so much access to smartphones is because of the mineral wealth, uh, something like the Congo, going down mines and picking out necessary materials, right? If you had to pay proper rates for the materials to produce a smartphone, you wouldn't produce a smartphone. So... We have a system that is based on black people being at the bottom. If reparations solve that, the whole system will collapse. So it's not possible, right? It's literally impossible. It's actually impossible. So it's, it's still so tangible then, even for people uh, as arguably far removed as I was like in the 21st century sitting here in 2018 having a chat it's still the, the, the effects of slavery are still really tangible, you know like I have a smartphone, which is a direct result of that. I mean, they should, they should, they should be tangible, but we don't. We tend to separate these things off. We tend to um, see it as historical. Uh, even this, one of the things that matters me oftentimes when we talk about modern day slavery, which is terrible. I mean, don't get me wrong, like it's not a good thing, but it isn't related to the transatlantic slave slave trade. is a particular thing, and it has a particular legacy. And the legacy of that is racism. It is white supremacy. It is. Um, a child dying every 10 seconds in Africa because uh, uh, they can't eat. It is, those are the legacies of it, and they are very, very clear. There's an author, Cedric Robinson, who wrote a book, Black Marxism, and he talks about the creation of the Negro was absolutely essential to Western development. Um, the Negro being the beast of burden, not being human, not, being, not having no civilization, and that's how they treat. To enslave us, that's how they treat us, like we were not human. The Negro, they created, in their minds at least, uh, the Negro, and that's what allows slavery to happen. And the, the question you want to ask is, has that category of the Negro disappeared, or is that category of the Negro still evident? Is it still used, and is it still, is it still there? And I'd argue that you can see very, very clearly that we're still treated as Negroes. Um, the Mediterranean 
crisis, which only became an issue when we talked about Syria, but that's been an African issue for ages. I mean, this is people who are living in Nigeria, living in Ghana, living in West Africa, and it's, they're so poor. We've impoverished their country so much that they take trips across the Sahara Desert and then risk their lives crossing these rickety boats to get into Europe. And again, what do, what does what do we do? What does Theresa May do? She says, well, we don't we don't want to support send out boats to help people drowning. Despise black life that much that we would let Negroes drown in the sea to stop other Negroes from coming into the, into Europe. And then if you look at how we treat in Europe, I mean, I mean, even in Britain, America is obviously terrible. I mean, they literally just gone down black people. Policing has gone down black people with impunity because again, we're not we're not really people. And then in the UK, even though the police don't carry guns, you are about three times more likely to die in suspicious circumstances at the hands of the police. Seven times more likely to be seen as mentally ill, again, crazy, aggressive, etc., etc. And every single inequality that you see in America, you have in you have in the UK around education, prison population, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, is the, if, if, if the Negro, creating the Negro was absolutely essential for slavery, has that gone away? No, you can see it very, very clearly today. So, people want to know more about this. So if you had to recommend what one resource, what resource would you recommend? Uh, I'll give you a few. The book I mentioned, Cedric Robinson, um, Black Marxism, is interesting because it has this, that story about the Negro and the creation of the Negro. The Legacy is a British Slave Ownership Project at UCL. You can literally just put in people, like, you can track where all the money went from the government's payment and reparations to slave owners, which is really fascinating as a resource. I definitely recommend that. Uh, I do some shameless self-promotion. Uh, my, my book on black radicalism, uh, which is called Back to Black, retelling the story of black radicalism, is coming out in July. It's kind of a more of a response to this situation. It's kind of, this is what's happened. What do we do about it, effectively? And I'm writing a book, uh, The West is Built on Racism, which is really going to bring together all these ideas and say, well, look, how, how exactly is the West? How does that work? How does that still work today, uh, contemporarily? Uh, there's a really good book by Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first president of Ghana, who talks about Africa must unite. And he uses the term neocolonialism and really explains neocolonialism in very clear examples. And actually, mass incarceration in, in the States is one of the ways you can see uh, the legacies of slavery, like really obviously. And there's an excellent book about this, The New Jim Crow by uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, where she breaks it down. How can we be better allies to this this history, really? Um, for for us, Elena and I, but also for our listeners as well. Uh, you know, it's the one question, it's the only question, the one question I can never have a good answer for is <laughs> what can white people do? I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. So in the book, uh, Back to Black, on black radicalism, which is very much what the black people do about, about this, and in one of the articles I wrote recently, I, I talk about this idea of whiteness as a, as a psychosis. And I think we think about whiteness as being an ideology or an identity or a, many, many things. And there's kind of a lot of people who say, well, look, once you recognize white privilege and, and, and kind of divest your privilege, there's a whole cottage industry of critical whiteness studies, people like David Rodiger and... Noel Ignatiev, who say once you identify the whiteness, what it is, you can kind of divest of it and move away from it and become allies in, um, in, in the liberation struggle. But for me, it's far more serious and insidious than that. And it, and it really does go to the fact that white supremacy is at the very, is, 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 is not an ideology, it is, it is the basis of the political economy. It is what everything else is built on in many ways. For example, the repara reparations isn't, isn't even an argument. There is no rational reason you would say that reparations aren't due. They're like, of course they're due. Like unpaid labor, trauma, done. It's due. You should pay the money, right? But, as I said before, you can't do it because to do this would be to end the West, right? It would destroy it. Uh, you can't end racism without ending the West. 
It's that simple. Like, it's, it's just not possible. Once you end racism, you end the West. And so the reason that uh, whiteness exists and the reason that we have these conversations that just go round and round and round, and, and even with the Marxists, geez, the left are sometimes way worse than the right in terms of their views on, on race in, in many ways. And I've just spent so much time... Um, and the book um, by Rennie Edo Lodge, Why I'm No Longer mm. Talking to White People About Race, example of that, you just kind of get exasperated, even people with good intentions. Because what's the point of a psychosis? A psychosis is to protect you, is to delude you into thinking that, that, that everything's okay or that things can be better. That there's, there's a root out of this. And so what I've noticed and tended to see, and maybe this is not all the case, is that even in, with the most well-meaning, most left-wing, uh, most right on uh, <laughs> whiteness, you still get this kind of not being able to understand the full level of complicity in this project. Like, for example, the white working class are complicit in this racial abuse. Everybody here, even black, actually, geez, I'm, I'm now complicit in it now because I'm, I'm, I get paid more than most people. I live in the West. We are complicit in it. And I don't, I've ne- I haven't seen an argument really from, from, from white people, even black British people, that would, would, would really see how that works, see that, that we have to lose something. That you, in the West, you have to lose something in order to have racial equality. And until that happens, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't see there being any real ally, meaningful allyship, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was really, that was really uh, lots of food for thought there. Thank you. Um, and what was good about it is it's stuff that I hadn't thought of before and maybe it made me uncomfortable to think about. So I'm glad you said it. I'm not sure. I think that's probably one of the most honest responses we've had to that question. So I think, yeah, thank, thank you, because I think that kind of like challenges us a lot as well. So we always ask our guests if there's anything that they're working on that we can help them platform and how people can find them. You mentioned that you've got some books coming out, which is great, because that's definitely something that we're going to be totally adding to our book club and our reading list. But is there anything else that, uh, where, like, where people can find you, maybe on Twitter or um, any other work that you're platforming? Um, yeah, so I think like, so one of the things with the, the book um, Black Radicalism, uh, it's not just a theoretical idea. Uh, we've started the Harambe organization of, of Black Unity and really saying, actually, let's, let's, let's put these ideas into practice and what does that look like? Um, and it's all based on Malcolm X's organization, Afro-American Unity. Uh, so we started this organization, and you can find the website for it, uh, www.blackunity.org.uk. And there's some projects that we're looking to fund. We're, so we're trying to do a restart, the Marcus Garvey Nursery, which is one of the oldest, probably the oldest black nursery in the country um, so there's stuff to look at and there's articles you write in there as well and stuff and stuff that people can, can support what else my, my, my Twitter address is Twitter address is that I'm old I'm an old 35 yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you say address handle, handle yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's um, at Kyendi underscore Andrews or K-E-H-I-N-D-E underscore Andrews and we also started a black studies association uh, where we're having quite a few actually quite a few events coming up in Birmingham Kathleen Cleaver the former Black Panther is coming on the 16th of March. Uh, we actually have an event on reparations on the 17th of March at Birmingham City University. And there's a Pan-African conference as well in September. And if you follow me or go to blackstudies.org.uk, you can find out all that information. And, oh yeah, and I, shouldn't, I should also mention the Black Studies degree, which is the first of its kind in Europe. We started this year um, and covering some of the stuff we've talked about is a, a degree which really says well black studies is the perspectives contributions and experiences of the Af- african african diaspora and so we created the very first uh, degree of its kind in europe 
where you learn uh, learn his history in there. There's politics in there. There's uh, black feminism in there. Um, and we also get students to go out and do activism. So you have to be you have to be active. You have to put the work. You have to put the theory into work in the community as well. And we're still recruiting for that degree ongoing. You can find out the details for that if you just Google Black Studies Birmingham City University. Amazing. Thank you so much. I, we really appreciate that that made, that was probably a lot of intellectual and emotional labour <laughs> on your part with that. So thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us today. That was Kindi talking to us about reparations for the slave trade. Up next is Afwa. My name is Afwa Hirsch. I'm a writer, author, journalist, broadcaster, former barrister and passionate advocate of social justice and intersectional campaigns against oppression. I am a black woman of mixed heritage with Ghanaian, English and Jewish ancestry. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this month. Uh, Sid and I are both really big fans of your work, so we're really honoured that you've taken the time to come and have a chat to us. Um, Particularly about a topic like... Uh, like slavery and I know that you, you've written a book called British which and it, it kind of has like a segment in there so would you be able to kind of give us an, uh, an overview of what the, your book is about um, and then also kind of how that's how slavery has been weaved into that a little bit my book is about identity and my central argument which is that I think Britishness is an identity in crisis and the reason it's in crisis in my view, is that we've never had a moment of reckoning where we've been honest about our past and the ways in which our history has informed our present, you know, the reasons why we are the multicultural society we are with the links to countries in Asia and Africa that we have, principally because of the empire, which was the greatest event in British history and one which people, I think, know the least about. And slavery is a really important part of that because it explains how Britain built itself into the modern industrialized country that it is and it also explains some of the intergenerational patterns of underprivileged that still characterize society today and i think that it is impossible to understand the contemporary structures that we see without understanding that history and that's why i really am one of a number of authors and there are many who've gone into more detail on this than me like david olushoga um and um peter fryer There are so many who have really gone into detail about the layers of this history and the way it's been erased. But I'm writing it more from a perspective of our relationship with the history rather than just the history itself and the ways in which it has informed our ideas about what Britishness is and who's included and who isn't. So you mentioned contemporary structures there and how we understand them. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you mean by contemporary structures? So if you look historically at the reasons that black British people um, came to be in this country, a a large number were recruited after the Second World War to rebuild the country. And they were recruited directly from countries which were former slavery economy-based colonies. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, there was still very much a white supremacist underpinning to them being invited here. The idea were these are people who are former slaves who can come and work here for low income and do menial jobs that British people can't or aren't able to do. And they will live in low quality housing and have access essentially to an inferior quality of education. And there's an ideology underpinning that, and that comes from slavery. And just in the same way that people like David Cameron, for example, whose family generated wealth from slavery or the royal family are still wealthy and affluent today. People who come from slavery are less likely to be wealthy today. You know, they have inherited a lack of education, a lack of assets, economic exclusion. These are things that are handed down through families in the same way that opportunity and privilege is handed down. So it's a very real part of the modern British experience. And I think that many of us are living this reality without understanding it. And for those of us who don't have a direct link to slavery, which I don't, you know, I'm not descended from anyone, as far as I know, who was taken from Africa to be a slave. Um, a lot of our ideas about race, the way we see ourselves, our ideas about whiteness, our ideas about blackness, they all come from this era. These are the pseudo-scientific theories that were evolved to justify something that was completely inhumane. And the only way that could be justified is with these very elaborate ideas about race. And we have inherited that. The language we use around race and some of the very deeply embedded ideas we have come from that time. And the reason is they've never been challenged. They've never been unpicked. And they've certainly never been radically um, rejected. And that's why I think it's very important to bring them out into the open where they belong and where they can be properly dissected and understood. So how... Thinking about the the British experience, and in particular your British experience, you know you're um, a black woman who who has mixed heritage. What's been your experience growing up? You know, I, I know that that you, you you grew up and you or you live in Wimbledon now, and there's kind of like some cultural significance there as well, isn't there? Yeah, I mean this, these histories are all around, and in research in my book, I found out that the colonial war, which turned my family into refugees in Ghana, was fought by. Um, Robert Baden-Powell, who invented scouting literally on my doorstep in Wimbledon. And then there's actually a museum to him there, and it makes absolutely no reference to um, the, the role that he played in what was then the Gold Coast. So I think that it's very important to understand that places that seem very far from black history, that seem very white, are intimately connected with these stories. And that's why I don't really like the phrase black history, because it implies that there's black history and then there's everything else which is normal history and actually that's the total fallacy these histories are intimately interlinked and always have been um wimbledon was for me a very privileged place to grow up and i it's a beautiful place and i my parents 
strive to give my sister and I amazing opportunities. But emotionally, I found it difficult because I was such a visible other because it's very um, non-diverse. It's a very white and English part of London. So even though London is such a diversity, Wimbledon stands apart. And it really gave me an experience of um, kind of othering, really, and microaggressions and imposter syndrome and I think all of the like insidious psychological effects that you can experience when you're the only person of colour in your environment so that was very much my experience and another thing I'm trying to do in in my book is say we this isn't just about racism it's not just about people who use hate speech or violent racist attacks that's not the problem that does still exist and it's as important as ever to fight against it but what happens on a wider scale is, I think, ignorance and subconscious bias playing out in people's lives and having all kinds of long-lasting psychological effects. And I've had to work through in my own life how that's affected me. And now I want to help other people understand ways it's affecting them. Absolutely. And in, so in 2017, we saw there was lots of coverage about, um, of Confederate statues, particularly in the USA or mainly in the USA, being toppled. Uh, can you explain why that was such a big deal? That's a big deal because it showed that history is not just um, kind of a harmless academic pursuit. It's very real in the way it shapes people's identities. You know, people have died over the narratives of history. And on both sides of the debate, you know, these Confederate statues are being resisted by people who want to celebrate Confederate history, who still have nostalgia for a time when black people were legally and officially regarded as second-class citizens. And people who are against that history still feel oppressed in their daily life by the presence of these racist white men on plinth. And even though that's different from the history of Britain, because we never had um, a, segregat- a segregatory regime in primary legislation in this country and we didn't have slavery and plantations on British soil we also come from a country which helped invent plantation slavery which profited from it we owned millions of slaves and the people who propagated and defended that system are also recognized on plinths all around our great cities and towns so I think that to see the passion and um, level of animosity that those statues ignite in America has kind of triggered us out of our slumber here and made us realize that this is important. It's not just latent history. It's very much alive. And it's all about a narrative that is constantly evolving. Do you think we need a similar movement here in the UK, you know, looking at particularly London and, you know, Bristol as well, like the statues and the, and the, 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 the names that buildings are named after? What do you think about that? I definitely think we need a conversation. And I think we can't decide what to do with these people until people understand who they are and what they did. And at the moment, they don't know. And sometimes they don't want to know. And I think it's really interesting how this is being met differently in different parts of the United Kingdom. I mean, in England, I have found a huge resistance to any debate about the truth of some of our heroes. You know, you talk about Churchill and his um, his disinterest at best in the fact that millions were starving and a famine in Bengal and his ideas that Indians were racially inferior. Um, you talk about Nelson being a defender of the slave trade and you get shot down. But in other parts, in Scotland, there's a very open conversation about renaming streets that are named after slave traders. And actually in Bristol, um, Colston Hall is being renamed. So I think there is an opening for this conversation to take place. But until people understand it on a wider scale, it's not going to be a meaningful conversation. And that's what I'm trying to 
remedy with my work. Right. And so in particular, you know, Sid and I found one of your articles about something that you'd written for The Guardian about toppling a statue like Nelson's column or, you know, in theory doing something like that. You know, it's this massive statue in London, really super iconic. Can you tell us just briefly a little bit why um, Nelson's column in particular is so problematic? Nelson's column is problematic for two reasons. One, because Nelson um, was a leading naval figure. The point of the Navy at the time, well, it had two, it had two main purposes. It was to um, defend Britain's security and it was to defend Britain's economic and political interests. And at that time, Britain's dominant economic interest was slavery. That was the, the largest net source of income from imports was from sugar from slavery-based sugar plantations. That's just a fact. And Nelson um, married his wife on a slave on, a, on an active slave plantation. Um, he had many friends who were prominent slave owners, some of the most brutal slavery plantation economy. And he used his position in the House of Lords to um, speak against people like William Wilberforce, who were at that time trying to abolish the slave trade. So even by the standards of his time, he had a case to answer. By our standards, he was unequivocally a white supremacist. And I think that the problem I have with Nelson is, one, that this history exists, and two, how little people know of it. You know, most people, if you tell them this, had no idea that Nelson had any connection to slavery. And that really shows the extent of our ignorance, because all senior naval figures had a connection to slavery in that era, because slavery was such an important part of naval business. And we've just erased that inconvenient fact from the narrative. So I'm trying to draw attention back to it and say, let's understand these people and not venerate them until we've worked out whether they truly deserve to be venerated. I'm not about to storm Trafalgar Square with a bulldozer Mm -hmm. and topple Nelson, but I definitely think we need to radically wake out of our total complacency at the moment, which is that we're content to just leave them there with no context and no debate. And so would you say that there is still, that the, the, there's the colonial legacy and the impact of slavery, you know, something that arguably happened to, you know, transatlantic slave trade happened around 200 years ago, is still being felt in cities, you know, as cosmopolitan as London? Absolutely. London, it would not be London without the slave trade. Our entire banking sector evolved out of the need to find new and inventive ways of giving credit to slavery owners and slavery interests. Our arts institutions, the Tate, is derived from a slave-owning family sugar production. So many of our biggest businesses have their roots in slavery. So many of our streets are named after people involved in the slave trade. Our statues commemorate colonial and slavery era figures who um, helped destroy the lives of black and Asian people around the world. So it's part of our landscape. And I'm not saying we should try to change that because that is our history. I'm saying that should be a reason why we're conscious of our history and why we talk about it. And the opposite is happening. We've just kind of normalized the the, the darkness in this history and, and we're still refusing to talk about it so I think you've got to choose one or the other you know if you want the history to be present then you need to talk about it and if you want to ignore the history then fine get rid of it but you can't have it both ways exactly and so then that leads me on to one of my final questions how can we be better allies to this history I, it's really important for me that we stop seeing this as a black issue, you know, that it's black history and it's something for black people to talk about. This is all about history and it's all about society. And these 
um, patterns and structures that we've inherited affect all of us. You know, I think it's really interesting at the moment, there's more scholarship than ever about how whiteness has been really damaging for white people because it is an ideology that promotes... Um, um, a myth that that is kind of uh, has a toxic mentality underneath it. So I think, you know, we're all bound up in this together. And far from being divisive, I think what the purpose of what I'm saying is to bring us all together and work out how we can create a fairer society for everyone. So I would like people to start owning this and not see it as a burden to someone like me to carry. And I came to this because of my own heritage and my own sense of otherness. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that this is so much bigger than than an issue about my identity as a mixed race girl in Wimbledon. You know, this is literally something that affects our nation to the core, and we're all caught up in it. And we all need to wake up to that and and have a stake. Absolutely. And so, my last question: How can we find you? Is there anything that you're working on? How can we read your work? How can we listen to you? The floor is yours. Oh, thank you. Well, my book, Brit-ish, is out now. It's published by Jonathan Cape, which is part of Penguin Random House, and you can buy it at all good bookstores, um, online and physical bookstores. Um, I have a column in The Guardian, which comes out um, every other Wednesday, so it's like a fortnightly column. I'm on a Sky News debate show called The Pledge, which airs on Sky News every Thursday evening at 8 o'clock. Um, and I do a debate show on CNN International, which is on Tuesdays at 12. So I'm on lots of different platforms and media, and I write for all kinds of different publications. I write for Vogue and Elle and Prospect Magazine as well. Um, so you can see my work all over the place. You can just Google me, Afwa Hirsch. I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram, and everything I do is related to the issues and projects that I'm passionate about. So I hope you'll follow me and see a bit more of what I'm saying. That was Afwa who told us about the colonial legacy of slavery and how the effects can still be felt today. Up next, Maravik. I'm Maravik from Southeast Asia, 42 years old and a mother of three. I left my country in 2013. I worked in Dubai. My employer brought me here 2014. I worked in Dubai with them for 10 months and then two, two weeks here and they ran away. I ran away because I was not properly fed. I didn't have any, I didn't have salary. I am not allowed to use phone. Living with them is like a hell. I haven't seen my children. I didn't even talk to them while I'm stay while I'm working with them. I experienced to be physically hit by Madame. It was really horrible. They treat us like animals. I ran away twenty fourteen. I have no money. I have no passport with me. I have no friends. I have nobody with me. What I have in me is the courage. The courage that I want my life back. I want to give a nice future for my children. That's what I'm only having by that time. I thought when I escaped, I thought I, my life will be good. But I was wrong. It's been quite hard. I really struggled a lot. After two years and a half of staying illegally, I met the, the Justice for Domestic Workers. And now it is the voice of domestic workers. Before I thought that slavery or abusing domestic workers is not happening here in UK. But when I joined this, char- this group, I learned that 
abusing, exploiting domestic workers are also happening here in UK. Marisa Begonia, our coordinator, helped me to be registered in Kalayaan, and Kalayaan helped me with my papers. And now I am under of national referral mechanism, but I have no right to work. I can legally stay here, but I can't work. It says that recovery period is 45 days, but I've been waiting for the decision more than one year. I don't know how long it will take. I don't know when they will give my decision, but what is the point of staying here legally if I can't work? I have family back home. I need to support my family. I can't just depend on from the help of friends, from the help of charity. It's until now it's quite I, I'm still struggling. Until now it's really hard. This tight visa system really pushing the domestic workers to do what they don't need to do. They, I mean, for example, not all the domestic workers that under NRM follow the rule that you can't work, okay. They also work because they have family to support too, even if they don't allow to work. You know what I mean? But now, we have new members that applied for trafficking and they granted us positive, reasonable ground and they have right to work. That's good for them. But 45 days recovery period, if they will get negative result, they can work here only for two years. That's it. And then they have to go back home. The question is, for those who will receive negative, what will happen to us? I don't think it's fair because 45 days, you can't bring back the domestic workers who's been in trauma, who's been in a very horrible situation to bring back their life, to be on their feet again for only 45 days recovery period. This national referral mechanism is just, we applied here because it seems that we don't have any other option rather to, to live illegally and to live like a criminal. We're always having fear. Someone will caught us. We better apply for this system. But I don't think it's really helping us. Because even if we're under the national referral mechanism, we're still struggling. We really can't say that we are really safe or the system is with us. No, I feel that it's, it's still quite unfair. And the thing is, how can we prove that we are victims of trafficking? No one witnessed that aside from us domestic workers and the employers behind closed doors. So it's really hard to prove that. How can we get the positive, conclusive ground? Until now, it's a big question mark. And I can say that it is not fair to us. Because even if they give us two years to stay here, We've been in a very bad experience. Domestic workers been a lot of abusives, a lot of exploitations. For just to only have two years, I can't see justice at all. How did you find yourself in the situation? I applied my trafficking after two and a half years of staying here, meaning my visa already expired. Mm-hmm. Meaning even if I got the positive conclusive ground, I have no right to work. So... I got something from other charity that support me, from Salvation Army. They offer me a weekly support. But I don't think it is enough for my personal expenses or to, or to send to my family. Most of the domestic workers under that system is really struggling. They only give us 35 a week, five pounds 
a day. That's why I'm always challenging everyone who hear, who hear our story. Step on our shoes so you can see and you can feel how our domestic workers struggling under this system. In your story, the moving from Dubai to coming to the UK, was that trafficking? Yes, because when they brought me here, I really don't know what's my visa. I don't have any contract and I don't have this holiday fee. My passport is with them and they brought me to a place where I don't know where it is. It's just later on when I found out it is in Ascot. What was the situation for you back in Southeast Asia? We're poor. Yes, it's really hard to find job. We don't have much jobs in our country. And there are no free education, no free hospitalization, no free. So we have no choice but to work overseas, especially me. I have college students, so I have no choice. And your family, your kids, are they still in Southeast Asia? Yes. When was the last time you saw them? 2013. For, for more than four years. Did you know at the time that you were getting yourself into domestic working, slavery? Did you know that that's what you were getting no. yourself into? No. So what happened? What did you search? When I, when I applied in our country from an agency, what you can see in the contract is something that you can't say no. Mm. Because everything yeah. the salary is good you have off you're free of everything but when I reach the, the Dubai and I'm already working in the house everything became dodgy everything didn't follow what's in the contract didn't follow did the agency know this we Do ask help from them we call them many times but it seems that they don't want to help us they don't want to enter so we have no choice but to deal with the situation. And it's a similar story for other domestic workers too, that they have this really great contract. Yes. Yes. But the problem is, because the employers are from Middle East, from Arab countries, they brought their system here. If in their country it is legal to them to hold a domestic worker's passport or no day off, not to give domestic workers day off or what, I understand that. But there's a different law here in UK. So the problem is they're bringing their system here. And it seems that it's just okay. I don't think that the government here knew about the domestic workers or not holding their passport or not experiencing abuse and exploitation. I don't think they, they I don't think that um, they don't know about it. So what was the process? So you went, you, you went, you got this contract, you met with the agency, then what happened to bring you to the UK? Yeah, they brought me here in UK, 2014. Yep. Then that's it, I ran away. I left them. So you were here for two weeks and then you ran away? Yes. So what kind of work were you doing? You say domestic work, is that like housework? Yes, private housework. And you were just being abused by? Yes, by madame. By madame? Yes. I was not properly fed because what I'm, I'm having is only their leftovers, if there are. So you no food? No food, no, no, no. I, I'm sleeping on the floor without mattress. I don't have day off. I don't have anything. M- little mistakes, they will deduct it from my salary or not to give my salary at all. Was it a family? A family. Really? Yes. So kids? Yes. Really? 
yeah. and, and did they know what was going on? Did they know? Yes. What made you decide that escaping was what you needed to do? There's nothing comes into my mind. I just want to get out of that house. Mm-hmm. That's it. What I'm only having with me is the courage that I want a better life for my children. I want my life back. That's it. It's really hard to explain to be in that kind of situation, to be in, but uh, I only describe it like I was in hell. Were the family, were they British? No, they are Arabs. Because most domestic workers here in UK were brought by their employer from Middle East. And I think most also employers that are abusive to their domestic workers are mostly from Middle East. As I observed, because most of the domestic workers are from Middle East. And one thing is, these employers, they can just go in and out of the country, even if their domestic already run away from them. Maybe because domestic workers can't just go to the police or step forward to seek help from the authorities because they were scared. Because it seems that we are treated like criminals. Are you in the UK illegally when you when you first came here? Or were you legal? When they brought me here, I am legal here. I still have my visa. But after I ran away and up to, of course, two years already passed. Could you have gone to the police? No, I am so scared of my situation here because I don't know who will be with me. Because when I escaped and I ran away, no one is with me. No one, I don't have friends, I don't know anyone. So how can I seek help from the police? I'm scared that they will they will return me to my employer. I'm scared that they will return me to my country. If they will return me to, to my employer, what will happen to me? They might kill me. If they will return me back home, what will happen to my children? That's always my question. What will happen to my family? I am not ready to go back. So for more than two years, I live illegally before I met Justice for Domestic Workers. Did your family back in Southeast Asia, do you think they had any idea that you were in a worst situation. There's only one thing that I told them. As long you received monthly salary, I'm okay. That's it. That's the only thing I told them. I said that I'm still alive. As long as they received anything from me, meaning I'm alive. Have you spoken to them since? Yes, when I ran away. I'm free, but I'm still struggling until now. So how many other people do you know then that are in a similar situation to you? A lot. We are the living evidences of slavery here in UK. I can say a lot. Is it mainly women? Yes, domestic workers. So the work that you do for justice for domestic workers now, do you work for them now, the charity? I'm an active member of the Voice of Domestic Workers and um, it's nice to work with them. We help domestic workers who are abused and exploited by their employers. We also help them to gain back their confidence. Yeah, We offer livelihood programs. At least they have their full back when they return home. We have this English class at least they can learn because most of domestic workers can't communicate well, especially in English. That's why they can't say no to their employers because they can't defend themselves, teaching them to communicate well, giving them this English class, at least they can communicate. We have this also IT class, you know, because our technology really developed so quickly, at least 
they have knowledge in it as well. We have this body, mind, and wellness program wherein, of course, at least saying dancing, at least to gain back their confidence after yeah. all the stress they've been, after all the traumas. Is everybody at this um, this charity, are they former domestic workers? So the people who are there are no longer still working for the employers who are mistreating them? Until now, they are domestic workers. Some of them get a new job, good employers now. But because when you have no right to work, you don't have proper documents. Even if you found another employer, you can still be exploited. You can demand the proper salary. You have no right because you're in this kind of system. Because the system now, domestic workers can only have six months. They can change employer but they can only have six months and after that, that is not renewable if you are not under national referral mechanism. The question is, who will hire domestic worker that can only work for six months? Not unless that employer is also an abusive one. So what's next for you then? What's next in your journey? I'm still waiting for the decision for my papers. Then, then maybe from there... I can start my new life. Would that be here? I don't know what, what is waiting for me. If I get my negative decision, I have no choice but to go back in my family. If I will get the positive, I can work for two years. So the positive decision would be to stay here in the UK yes. and to work for two years? For two year, years. One year, then renew, renewable for another year. That is the domestic worker visa. Would you then go back to... Yes. And see your family? Yes. How old are your kids? My eldest is 19. My second one, my son, is 17. And my youngest is 11. So how can we be better allies to people like you, to other domestic workers, to people that might not know that this is going on in the UK? Personally, I'm asking you to be one of our voice, to be our speaker, because, you know, at least they can hear what's really happening they can see what's really happening to us and how can we find and support voice of domestic workers with HIC donations yeah we're asking help because we're self-help group so most of the expenses that we spend for the runaway victims for the new members are mostly coming from our, our own pocket so we're asking help and lastly that was Maravik sharing her personal story of modern slavery This was an epic episode for us, unpeeling British history and facing up to Britain's present too. As always, let us know what you think. Shout about our episodes to your friends and rate and review us on iTunes. You can Facebook us, Kicking the Kairiarchy. You can find us on Twitter, at Kikkairiarchy. Website, www.kickingthekairiarchy.org. Or you can email us, kickingthekairiarchy at gmail.com. Thanks to our assistant producers Emma Hallahan, Amelia Parker and Becky Malone for putting this episode together. That's all from us here at Kicking the Karaoke. Have a great week. If you want to find out how you can help Maravik and others like her in her situation, make sure to check out their website, thevoiceofdomesticworkers.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 